My name is Andrew Maxwell. Today's scripture reading is Genesis 1-1 through Revelation... Tw oh, wait. Uh, <laughs> Genesis 2-3. Um, you may be able to guess this is found on page one of the Black Pew Bibles. Um, if you don't have a Bible or you know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of the Black Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Uh, please stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast, of the earth, and to every bird in the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. Good morning. My name is Sergei Marchenko. I'm one of the pastors and elders here, and I'm excited that you are here on this Memorial Day weekend, and, um, you know, because some people are traveling, you're going to have to make up for them by more active participation as usual. You know that, right? Would you please stand with me if you're able, and we're going to affirm our trust in God's Word by reciting this passage of Scripture. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. You may be seated. As uh, Ben mentioned, we are starting a new sermon series. This is going to be, our whole summer will be looking at various songs recorded in the Bible. And so my goal is to help us learn how to respond to the gospel, not just with our heads by saying, I believe, I understand, but also with our hearts. And so when, when songs are heard and sung, our hearts are affected. So that's the, the purpose of this sermon series for the summer. And we'll look at a variety of different songs. There'll, there are many kinds of songs in Scripture that will affect different parts of our hearts as well. So we are looking uh, at the very beginning of the Bible, the first chapter of Genesis. And uh, as you know, this is one of the most important passages of Scripture, because it defines the worldview of the Christian. Uh, It is also one of the most controversial passages of Scripture. Not surprisingly, Christians and non-Christians argue about that, and especially as as faith intersects with with science. There's a lot of conversation, how does modern science fit into this? How does this fit into the modern scientific theories? Uh, But even among Christians, there's a lot of conversation and controversy as to what this chapter means. What does it say? Now, this morning, any comments I make about the intersection of faith and science will be tangential, okay? My topic is not to resolve the tension between science and faith this morning. However, I do think that the way we understand Genesis 1, and this is my purpose, is to help us understand what it says and how it says it, and especially how it says it, as we understand and get a handle on how it portrays God and creation, 
I think it will really help us as we, as we address this tension between science and the Bible, or at least the apparent tension between science and the Bible. And uh, you can kind of work from this framework to all sorts of implications uh, of, of that debate. I think it's an important debate, but I will try to show you how Genesis 1 helps us with that. Okay, so our outline is very simple. Uh, first, let's consider how to read Genesis 1, and specifically its genre. Secondly, let's consider how to understand it. How do we interpret it? What do we get out of it? What are the main points here? And finally, and maybe the most importantly, is how do we respond to Genesis 1? So how do we read it? How do we understand it? And finally, how do we respond to it? Okay, please allow me to make a bold statement, okay? And be gracious to me. Listen as I work through my argument, okay? Here's my bold statement. It is my belief that many Christians, especially in the recent last 100, 200 years, have misread Genesis 1. I believe that we have taken and defended positions that are not explicitly demanded by Genesis 1. I'm not saying they're wrong positions necessarily. Um, I think there's a lot of different ideas that could be supported by Genesis 1. But what I'm saying is that we have committed to things and argued things and founded organizations and raised a lot of money to argue something that I don't think Genesis 1 demands that we do. Maybe true, maybe not, but it does, it's not demanded, it's not required by the text. Okay. So let me suggest to you this morning a different reading of Genesis 1. Uh, maybe for some of you it won't be different, for some of you I think it will be dare I say, a better reading of Genesis 1. Okay, so bear with me. I know I'm going to push on some issues here this morning. The issue in understanding Genesis 1 is the genre of our passage. What is the genre of Genesis 1? Now, as you know, the Bible contains many genres, and genre is just a way, a kind of literature. It's a kind of a text so, for example, in the Bible, you have historical narrative where a story is told as it happened. Uh, you also have apocalyptic literature like Ezekiel that, that has visions of the heavenly temple, highly symbolic, right? Direct revelation from God. You have poetry, of course, the Psalms. You have wise sayings like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. You have letters. Paul wrote letters to churches, particular people, particular congregations. Those are all different genres. The question is, what is the genre of Genesis 1? Because that's one of the most important interpretive decisions a Bible reader makes. If we are taking something, a passage of Scripture, and we are taking it in, in the wrong genre, we are bound to misinterpret it and misread it, of course. If you're reading a psalm, which is poetry, which is a song, which is a prayer, right? But you are reading it as a historical account, you're not going to understand what the psalm is saying. It's not meant to do that. It's not, to communicate, it's not meant to communicate historical facts. It's meant to communicate emotions and feelings and attitudes. It's very important to determine what the genre of the text is. So what is the genre of Genesis 1? And many people, many Christians today, and then the previous generations have determined that this is, in fact, a sort of a technical account of creation. This is God 
given us kind of a science report, you know, a scientific update on what happened at creation. Well, my question is, is that how we're supposed to read it? Because if we are supposed to read it that way, then that determines all the other interpretive decisions we're making about the text. But is it, in fact, a scientific account, a technical account of creation, of the process of creation? Well, let's do a little exercise, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read something, and then I'm going to ask you what genre you think it is, okay? On the first day of Christmas, my true love sent to me a partridge in a pear tree. Wait till I finish, okay? There are more verses. On the second day of Christmas, my true love sent to me two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. On the third day of Christmas, my true love sent to me three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the fourth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me four colin birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Okay, well, what is, what is it? What genre is it? <laughs> this is where that question is supposed to be easily answered by you. It's not meant to confuse, it's meant to clarify. Help me, what is it? It's a song. Somebody say song, please. Okay. Okay. It's a poem or it's a song, right? It's poetic. Now, you know that because you know the song. Of course, you've heard it, you've sung it. It's a weird song, but it's, it's a song. <laughs> but even if you hadn't heard this before, if you've never heard this song, if you've never sung it yourself, as you listen to it, as you read it, you notice certain qualities of it. For example, there are verses that are clearly distinguished, right? So the first day, second day, something happens, then it's repeated to remind you what happened before, right? There's a certain structure. There's a certain rhythm that allows you to sing it. Uh, there are certain themes. All those things are true of poetry. And that's how we know that's a poem, that's a song. We can spot it by those qualities. Now let me read the first several verses of Genesis 1 and just see how, how similar it is to the weird song I just quoted earlier, okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. 
The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Now, as you read it, especially as you read it out loud, that's, we need to read poetry and we need to sing songs to get it. You see the rhythm here. You see the clear division of verses. You see themes. You see repetition. You see imagery and, and highly stylized delivery. Those are all qualities of poetry. What genre is this? Well, whatever genre we call it, it must include some poetic element to it. And different people, of course, there are many scholars that write on this and talk about this, and they all disagree with each other, of course, because if you want to propose a theory, it has to be a new theory in disagreement with everybody else. That's how the academy works. But nonetheless, many of them agree that there is some, at least some, level of poetic effort made here. So, for example, D.A. Carson thinks there's a mix of genres here, but that it is certainly highly symbolic and needs to be read as a highly symbolic literature. Bruce Waltke calls Genesis 1 a literary artistic representation of creation. Literary artistic representation of creation. Timothy Keller calls it a song. He just comes out and, and says it's, it's a song. Whatever else Genesis 1 may be, it certainly has poetic elements. I don't see how any of us can deny that. Now, we may say there are other elements here. We may disagree on that. We may say, okay, does it teach us anything about science? We may disagree on that. But we can't really disagree that it's in some way poetic that there's a rhythm, there's a cadence, there's repetition, there are images. All those things are important, and we have to take it into consideration as we interpret it, as we try to understand it. Okay, so if you are tracking with me, and please try, okay, try, give me grace, because I may be giving you something new here. But if you agree with me that there's poetic elements, there's some poetry in Genesis 1, then the next question is, how do we understand it? And here's where a lot of Christians are hesitant to agree that Genesis 1 is poetic because the assumption is if it's poetic, it's not true. You see, we've bought into this idea that to communicate truth, you must communicate it by science, by numbers and figures and charts. I don't know how we got there, but I think a lot of us are there. And so when somebody says, let me tell you the truth, you are not expecting them to break into a song. You're expecting them to give you facts, right? Proof, evidence, scientific, journalistic-type stuff. And yet, as you think about the history of the world, we have not always had scientists. We have not always had journalists, but we have always had poets. Because poetry has a powerful, moving, effective way of communicating truth. In fact, a lot of us communicate truth through poetry. When you say to your spouse, I love you, and then you add a flourish to it, right? You, you have to say something else. I am learning in my 20th year of marriage. 
I have to say more than that, and it better be poetic. <laughs> Why? If it's poetic, it's true, you see. Because I'm making an effort to express something that is true in a fresh and hopefully moving way. Now, that's, that's the reality most of us deal with. And yet, when it comes to Genesis 1, the objection is, well, if it's poetry, we can't take it liter literally. Well, maybe you can't take it literally, but it doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's not communicating any truth. So what truth does it communicate? And I'm going to I'm going to interpret it as a poem, as any poem, as you can take any poem and interpret it in the same way. What are the themes? How does it begin? How does it end? What are some of the emphases here? That's how you interpret a poem. What is it trying to say? You're not saying, does he literally mean the sky is blue? You're not asking that question. But you're asking the question, what is the poet saying? What is he or she communicating to us? So here's four, I'm going to walk through it pretty briefly. Here's some four things, four truths, and I would say moving, affecting important truths that Genesis 1 communicates to us as a poem, as a song. Number one, look at the first line of the song of, of our text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is how the poem begins. It is critical to begin a poem in the right way. The first line is so important in poetry. That's what grabs you. That's what often gives you a thesis. That's what often pulls you in and tells you, this is what I'm talking about. So what is he talking about here? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the hero of the song. God is the sole creator. He's at the center. He's at the beginning. Before anything was, God was. And he is creating. Now, is that... A truth? Absolutely it's a truth. It's given to us in poetic language, but it is a truth. It's something for us to grab onto and say, this is real. This is going to be part of my worldview as a Christian. God intentionally created our world. It didn't happen by accident. It was not some inexplicable random event. It was not one force emerging victorious in a primordial struggle. It's quite simply just God. God did it. God created. Here's poetry communicating truth. And I don't think that Genesis is responding to any of the contemporary scientific convictions specifically, but it is certainly telling us that any theory that portrays the world as random and its birth is accidental is not compatible with the Christian worldview. Now, so, so you see how you can draw scientific truth out of this, but it comes to us through poetry. It comes to us through a forthful, forceful statement that God is the sole creator and that He is intentional in creating, that He is at the beginning. Of course, that's going to affect how we see science. Secondly, God speaks things into existence. God says and things happen. This is this is a theme. As you read this poem, as you see that again and again it's repeated that God said, and it was, and that was good. God, is, God speaks, which means He's a personal God. He's a speaking God. Because He's so powerful, things appear based on His words. Now, is this text concerned with explaining how God's words bring the world into existence? Is it concerned with the process? 
Is it given us a, a physics lesson of how things are created out of vocal vibrations? No, it doesn't tell us that. It's not concerned with that. It simply tells us that a personal God created the world. It communicates in a powerful, affecting, moving way, as poetry does, that the creator of our world is a person, and his personality is reflected in his creation. Now, once we get to the New Testament, we get more information about that. We read passages like John 1 and 1 through 3 that we read for call to worship, and the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, there's the big reveal. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father full of grace and truth. This person, God, speaks the world into, into existence. And who is the agent of that creation? Who is the Word? It's Jesus. Without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. Jesus was there. He was creating the world. Colossians 1, 15 and 17, we read, this is about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The Creator is a person. And any worldview that presents creation as an impersonal process, unintentional development, is not compatible with the poetic truth of Genesis 1. The argument I'm making is that we can get truth out of poetry that will, in fact, help us to resolve tension, apparent tension between science and faith, but we can do it in a way that I think is more faithful to the text. Three, God again and again proclaims that His creation is good. After the creation of human beings on the sixth day, God proclaims that everything He made was very good. What truth does that that, that piece of poetry tell us? Well, of course, obviously, that the world was created good. It's a good world. God did not make anything evil or bad. It was a good world by God's design. And then later in Genesis, of course, we find out what happened to the world, what changed the world and introduced evil and sin into it. But it was not the original idea. God made it good. This is important. Any worldview that starts with the world in chaos that starts with a world in conflict and, and attributes these battling forces to the world from the very origin is not compatible with Christianity based on the truth of the poetry of Genesis 1. Now, here's something else we learned from this pronouncement that God again and again says it is good, it is very good. We learned that God enjoys His creation. This is God saying, this is good. I love it. This brings me pleasure. I cut the lawn yesterday, and I found myself throughout the day looking out on my lawn in the backyard and saying to myself, it looks good. <laughs> it's nice. It's good. I'm enjoying it. I wasn't even outside, but I was looking at it. I did something and then I rejoiced in it. 
I did some, now I'm enjoying that until Monday, tomorrow. <laughs> you look at things that you do, and, and you exalt over them. That's, that's a normal human emotion as we are reflecting God's image. God does that. God makes something, and He says, it's good. It's not just the assessment of, of quality. It's not just God saying, I made it, this, this meets my requirements. Sure, that's part of it. But it's mostly God saying, I love what I make. This brings me pleasure. This is good. Now, remember the, the poetic nature of Genesis 1. This is God singing over His creation. This is God writing a poem to praise His creation. God taking pleasure in His creation. This is too important for us to miss in Genesis 1, and yet it is often missed when we get, we get involved in all sorts of scientific questions. Let's not miss that God created the world, and He affirmed its goodness by enjoying it. One of the poetic points that is made in Genesis 1 is that God enjoys His creation. Now, the best illustration for this, and I mean the best illustration for this, comes from the hit movie, Babe. <laughs> the mid-90s classic, which I'm sure most of us are familiar with. A heartwarming story of a sheep herding pig that develops a relationship with the farmer, with her master, and in fact wins a competition at the end, validating all the dreams that the farmer had for the pig. Now, do you remember, there's a point in the movie, if, if I were the kind of preacher that would show video clips, I would show it now, okay? <laughs> but I'm not that kind of preacher, so I'll explain it and, and describe it to you. Hopefully, hopefully you'll be able to recall that, that touching scene where the pig, babe, finds out, somebody, somebody tells her that humans eat pigs. She thought she was a pet, and now the truth is revealed, and she just stops eating and drinking water, and because she thinks this is it, her world crumbles. The farmer, Farmer Hoggett, uh, has a lot of affection for the pig, and so he gets a, a baby bottle and tries to feed the pig and tries to give her water so she wouldn't get dehydrated. And there's that, that beautiful scene where he starts singing to the pig. Do you remember that? And he goes, if I had words to make a day for you, I'll sing a morning, golden and true. He sings that, and the pig starts drinking the water. But then the farmer, in, in self-forgetful enjoyment of the moment, gets up and starts singing louder and finally starts dancing. Do you remember that? And, and he dances a jig complete, this complete self-forgetfulness. You see the animals looking through the window from the barnyard, marveling at the farmer, this reserved farmer, who is just dancing and jumping up and down and singing to the pig that is now, by this time, the pig is already eating. The pig has been, she's been restored. The affection of the master has restored the pig. Now, it's a it's, it really is a beautiful scene. I, I know I'm, I'm making, making fun of it a little bit, but but this is a great illustration of what God does at creation. This is God making the world and then singing over it. 
dancing over it and saying, this is good. There's so much affection that God has for His creation and specifically for the people that He creates. It goes from good to very good. And finally, the, the end of the poem here, and we're getting into chapter 2, the first three verses. It really belongs in the first chapter, I think. The poem ends with God resting on the seventh day. And what does the ending of the poem communicate to us? What truth does it tell us? It tells us that creation is meant to be at peace with the God of peace. Creation is meant to function in complete acceptance and affirmation by God. Our lives are meant to be fueled by God's pleasure in us. Let me say this again. Our lives are meant to be fueled by God's pleasure in us. That's how we're made. We're supposed to function in that way. This is the truth that Genesis 1, this poem, this song is communicating to us. We were created to hear God say to us, you are good. You are very good. I rejoice over you. I love you. Rest in my love. Enjoy me even as I enjoy you. This is a poetic point. This poem is meant to communicate this in a forceful, moving, affecting way that God loves us and that He made us so He could love us. He made us so He can enjoy us and we can enjoy Him. So the Sabbath, the the seventh day that is not supposed to end, by the way, There's no evening of the seventh day here. It's supposed to last in eternity because God is, His plan is to enjoy us forever. That's how the poem ends. It's beautiful. It's moving. Now, does it move you? If it moves you, that's my argument, that's a poem. Because simple descriptions don't move us, but poems and songs move us. So how do we respond? My last point, how do we respond to this song, to this poem? How do we respond to the God portrayed in this song? How do we respond to a God who speaks the world into existence and then sings about it? What kind of God is so affectionate toward His creation that He writes a song about it? What do we do with this God? And of course, this is not the only song in Scripture. A third of the Bible some scholars say a third of the Bible is poetic. That's a lot of the Bible. God, who decides to communicate with us, decides to communicate with us at least in part through poetry, through images and rhythms and cadence. Why is that? What do we do with a God who chooses to reveal himself through songs and poems? Friends, we have something strange on our hands. Let me use a biblical term we have something holy. When we're dealing with a God like that, this is something we are unfamiliar with. This is a marvelous God who does that. What do we do with Him? A God who begins His book with a poem. And He says, let me tell you how I created you. And by the way, I wrote a song for you. This God is not only concerned with communicating data to us, content, He wants to tell us what he feels. He wants to tell us what's in his heart. How do we respond to a God like that? We have something strange on our hands. This is, this is unusual. 
This is not the idea of God that we would typically come up with. We have a God who reaches for poetry, who breaks into a song, who creates by speaking beautiful, powerful words. This is not a God who is withdrawn or distant. His heart is open. He is expressive. He is engaged. How does He want us to respond to Him, to this kind of God as He describes Himself in Genesis 1? I said that we have something strange on our hands, but it's even stranger than Genesis 1 tells us. You see, if you read Genesis, you get to Genesis 3, and you, you find Adam and Eve, the beautiful creation of God. The people who heard God say, you are good, you are very good, I love you, rest in my love, be part of my eternal Sabbath with me. The people who heard God say that and lived in affirmation and acceptance of God at one point rejected all of that. And they simply plugged their ears and said, I don't want to hear God's song anymore. And so what does God do to somebody who says, I don't want to live based on your acceptance and based on your affirmation and validation of me. I don't want to live based on your grace. I don't want to live based on your love. What does God do to people like that? This, this singing poet God, what does he do? He comes into our world, the world he created. He becomes part of the created order. Jesus comes and this God-man, this uncreated being, is born as a human baby. And this God-man, this Jesus, lived his life here, right, in our world, in our broken world that, that is running away from God and is plugging their ears and not listening to God. So Jesus lived here, and he lived in complete affirmation and acceptance of the Father. Do you remember, it's fairly often in the Gospels, you read of an instance when, when the Father speaks audibly and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What does that mean? Why does the Father say that? This is the same as God speaking in Genesis 1 and saying, this is good. This is very good. This is God affirming creation. This is God saying, this is, I enjoy this. I am pleased with this. And of course, He is supremely pleased with His Son. But let's not forget that this is not just one person of the Trinity speaking to another person of the Trinity. That makes sense. This is also God speaking to a human being and saying, I am perfectly pleased in this human being. This person brings me joy. This is very good. And that's the life of Jesus. He lived in that reality, though in the broken world, but constantly experiencing himself the affirmation and validation of the Father. And yet, on the cross, the eternal song of creation fell silent. This is a, a dramatic, we can talk about the genre of drama in Scripture, this is a dramatic experience, a dramatic moment in, in, in salvation history. When Jesus is on the cross, the Word who created everything, who was there when everything was created and without whom nothing was created, who gave life to everything. He's the source of life. And yet, this is the same person who gives up his life on the cross. The uncreated one comes undone 
on the cross. Unimaginable. The firstborn of all creation was crying out on the cross for affirmation, for acceptance, for assistance. Jesus longing to hear, you are good. You are very good. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But there was silence in heaven. Just deathly, deathly silence. The father doesn't respond to the son as the son is crying out for the father's help on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father doesn't respond. Did Jesus deserve to be rejected by God? No. Remember, he is the son in whom God is well pleased. He is very good. Even in his humanity, he's the ideal creation. He's the perfect creation. But he did it for us. He experienced God's silence on behalf of the fallen creation. He experienced the unimaginable absence of God for us. And the question is why? So we could hear God's song again. And then the resurrection comes. And in the resurrection of Jesus, a new creation breaks forth. This is a, the, the, the eternal Sabbath is resumed. It's begun again. And now God says, I'm sending Jesus so we can restart things, restore, renew this. So you once again could hear me say, this is good, this is very good, I love you, you are my beloved child, I am well pleased in you. But how, how does it happen? How can it happen to people who have plugged their ears and refused to listen to God's song? If we find ourselves in Christ by faith, if we unite ourselves to Christ and we say, in Christ, who is the beloved Son of God, I too can be found beloved. I too can be found by God acceptable. He can affirm me and validate me and love me in Christ, through Christ, through his death, through his resurrection. We can again hear the song of God. Anybody who is united with Christ by faith is part of this new creation, this new Sabbath. He's our Sabbath. We talked about it in Hebrews. He's our new Sabbath where we can rest from our works. Our works of trying to earn God's favor of trying to make up our own songs to replace God's song over us, trying to earn our own love. And yet God says, in Christ, you will once again hear words of my affirmation. In Christ, God looks at us and says, this is very good. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. So how do we respond to this God? To the God who created us, and then redeemed us to the God who gives us a new life through Christ. Friends, there's only one appropriate response to God's song. We respond by singing ourselves. There's no other response that makes sense. We must sing ourselves, and we must sing, this is my story, and this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. We must sing, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Our, song, our hearts has to, have to overflow in song if we understand Genesis 1. We sing. We do what creation is supposed to do. You see, creation was, was meant to sing. We're meant to praise God. 
Every praise is to our God. We, ha we have to sing in response to what God has done for us. When you think about the word silenced for you, your heart must break out into a new song. When you think about Jesus giving up his life for you, you must sing. When we think about the Spirit opening our ears to hear God's song again, how can we not sing? This morning I was reading uh, Psalm 117. It was just the next psalm that comes up. And I think God was saying to me, here's a poem I wrote. You might want to use it in your sermon because it fits perfectly. It's a short, quick psalm. Psalm 117 says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. We must sing if we understand these things, if we appropriate those things, if we feel these things. Now, by singing as a response to Genesis 1, I don't mean actually singing only. Yes, I am calling you to sing, and you will get your chance in just a couple of minutes. I am calling you to actually sing, but I'm calling you to do much more than that. I'm calling you to commit your whole lives to praising God, to worshiping Him. I'm calling you to make your whole life a song to God. George Herbert, the great poet, described our purpose, the purpose of humanity in this way. It's, it's, it's a beautiful way to talk about it. He says, of all the creatures, both in sea and land, only to man thou hast made known thy ways, and put the pen alone into his hand, and made him secretary of thy praise. He made us secretary of his praise, meaning we are to record and read his deeds. We are to reflect his glory with our whole lives. Our lives need to become records of his faithfulness. We are to sing to him not just with our voices, as we do at church, as we will in two minutes, but also with our whole lives. And so I think if we read Genesis 1 correctly, the intended response is not to figure out how it fits with science. That may be secondary response at some point. The intended response is to worship Him. That's why He gives, gives us this book. God says, look at me. I am a God who sings over His creation. I'm, I'm a God who enjoys His creation. I'm a God who makes good things and then praises them. So what do you do in response? You join into that joy, and you worship, and you sing. You become secretaries of his praise.